0: Why renter's insurance? Because pipes. State Farm renter's insurance covers stuff landlords don't, like furniture that gets drenched by a broken pipe. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. Site, I'm Charlie, and joining me from the land down under is my co host Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm
1: doing pretty good. How are you?
0: I'm good. Before we get started, we wanted to send a big thank you and a shout out to two of our podcast friends. These two podcasts have been really supportive of us, and we wanted to let them know that we appreciate it. First is Robin Warder from the Trail Went Cold podcast. If you love Unsolved Mysteries, like the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, you'll love his podcast. And the other one is Judge and Jeremy Podcast. I think we've probably mentioned them on the show before, so definitely check them out. They cover some really interesting stories, and they vary between older cases and more recent ones. But for you who are listening to us today, we have an older case for you. And this case comes to us from our listener, Nick. So thank you, Nick, for sending in this suggestion. It's the historic death of Star Faithful, a New York socialite who died in 1931. Most of our information is from the award-winning book The Passing of Star Faithful by Jonathan Goodman, and he had unprecedented access to the police files in this case. It is a dense book with a lot of information and I'll confess it was it was a struggle to organize a lot of it into our format and into our narrative, so any mistakes are mine, not his. And we also used a large number of contemporary newspaper articles to get a feeling for the context of a lot of this information. This case blew up in the press, and sensationalism really took over, so we did have to do some filtering of information. And this case is going to touch on a few big topics, I know sometimes our historical cases are more straightforward. We won't dive a lot into the yellow journalism or the victim blaming that happened, but just keep those in mind. They're undercurrents to all of this. But we will discuss sexual abuse and mental illness because Star was a victim to both of these. Before we really get started in the story, we wanted to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, We really appreciate what they do for us. And so we'll take a quick break and talk about Blue Apron. We often get comments about how people love insight for the mother's perspective that Allie and I bring to the table. We have eight children between us, so it's no wonder it's part of our perspective in the show and everywhere else. And that's one reason we are glad that Blue Apron decided to sponsor the show. It matters to us to feed our kids fresh foods, and support a more sustainable food system so that these fresh foods are around for our kids and our grandkids, and we expect plenty of grandkids. Blue Apron's ethically sourced food is then put in the hands of chefs who design high quality meals with fresh ingredients, and even better, from our mother's perspective, Blue Apron families cook together nearly three times more often. With their step-by-step full-color recipe cards, my kids and I can cook side-by-side and spend that 30 to 40 minutes together. And the food comes to you perfectly portioned. So not only are there no trips to the grocery store, which is my least favorite chore, there is also no food waste. The upcoming meal that caught my eye is the spicy shrimp coconut curry with cabbage. If you try it, definitely let me know your thoughts on it. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com site. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash site. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. To get started, let's talk about Star herself. Star was born Marion Star Wyman on January 27th, 1906. It was always intended for her to go by Star, even though her first name was Marion. It was a family name on her mother's side, and there was a child in every generation, male or female, who had that name. Which I found kind of interesting because I think of Star as a very modern, 1960s and newer name. I don't really think of it as a name from the, ni- the early 1900s.
1: It would have really stood out. Her father
0: was Frank Wyman, and her mother was Helen Pierce. Helen came from old money, but her particular branch of the family was poor at the time of her marriage. And the young family lived in the Chicago area until Star was about a year old when they moved back east to New Jersey. Frank often traveled to find work and would be gone for long periods, and eventually he would be gone for longer and longer periods. And Star, her mother, and her little sister Elizabeth, who also went by her middle name, which was Tucker, traveled to stay with family in Massachusetts more and more. Star was raised primarily by her mother in her early years due to her father's absences, but as she approached school age, Helen was in a tough spot. She didn't have the money to send her to a private school, but she had social standing that it was considered embarrassing to send her to the free public school. Martha Peters was a cousin of Helen's and the wife of a prominent politician named Andrew J. Peters. And Starr would often spend summers with them. Martha had gathered some family members together who were still doing well financially, and she proposed that they share the expense of sending Starr and then later Tucker to a private school. In her final year of school, Starr did not return to the school, And she left just five months short of graduation. This wasn't a planned decision. Her relatives had actually already paid for her final term. I mean, not that it matters to the story much, but I'm cheap. And so I just (laughs) want to point out they did get a refund from that. But they did pay it. So she went home for Christmas and then just never went back to school. In 1925... Star was 19, and her mother remarried a man named Stanley Faithful, and that's when Star took the name. Now, she didn't call her stepfather Dad, but she did take the name and become Star Faithful. Not entirely sure why she did this if they did it for appearances' sake. Being divorced in 1925 and remarried could be looked down on, but Star Faithful is a really cool name, so I don't blame her for taking it. Now, Starr had what were characterized as, quote, emotional disturbance during her teen years. She would have mood swings primarily. Her parents said she didn't have very many friends in New York and that she didn't date much at all, which we'll find out wasn't entirely true.
1: On June 29, 1926, Andrew J. Peters, who was the husband of Helen's cousins, He was in New York and called the Faithfuls to invite Star out to the theatre. Star was 20 at the time and she had spent a lot of time over the years with Peters. He had taken what most people felt was a parental interest in Star and as her own father was largely out of her life, this would have been an important missing piece to Star, I would imagine. While out that night, the weather turned stormy, so Peters called the faithfuls and said he would put Star up in a hotel for the night, and he would bring her home in the morning. When Star did get home that following morning, her family reported her to be upset and agitated. She then disclosed to her mother that Peters had molested her from the time she was 11. She was upset because that night they had had quote-unquote natural sex for the first time. And what she described, and remember, this is 1926, so they didn't know then what we know today. And what she described is what we now know as grooming. And just briefly, grooming is the act of befriending, you know, creating an emotional connection and then lowering the sexual inhibitions of the child, And befriending and creating an emotional connection to this fatherless, vulnerable little girl is definitely what happened here. He would take Star on long trips without anyone else. He was showing her the time and the focus that, from what we know now, it seemed excessive seeing that he had six boys of his own at home that he could have been taking trips with. Regardless, Star alleged that Peters had her read from the studies in the Psychology of Sex which is a six-volume set about sexuality. He would also introduce her to sniffing a rag with a chemical on it that made her feel woozy, and that would have been either ether or chloroform.
0: Just briefly, we're going to back up a bit and explain who Andrew Peters was, other than just the husband of a cousin. From 1918 to 1922, which overlaps the period Star said he was sexually abusing her, he was the mayor of Boston. He had previously served in the U.S. House of Representatives. He had an appointment from President Woodrow Wilson to the Treasury Department at one point. This made him incredibly high profile. And these accusations alone could destroy his career and reputation, regardless if they were true. I will say right now, from what I have read, that I do believe these allegations were true.
1: I 100% agree that.
0: What Starr described and what her parents relayed afterwards it it fits the pattern perfectly
1: really she'd have no reason to make that up no
0: and her later behaviors definitely show a girl in crisis and I believe abuse played a part in that agreed
1: two days after Star disclosed to her mother she left on an extended holiday cruise that had been planned prior to all these claims coming out while she was gone Star's mother and stuff While she was gone, Star's mother and stepfather debated about what they were going to do. Her stepfather, Stanley, he negotiated a payout, otherwise known as hush money, from Peters. He would often have his wife write the letters, but it's believed they were dictated by him. The idea was that Star would need treatment for this abuse, and $20,000 should just about cover it. And when we look at inflation, that is about the equivalent of nearly $280,000 in today's money. Later, it would come out that they continued to ask Peters for money. Because Helen and her girls didn't work, and Stanley only worked on and off, so this money apparently was to support the family. In the end, Peters paid the family a total of $80,000, or $1.1 million today. And while this money was used for Star's treatment, it was also used for the family's living expenses and for Starr and Tucker to take cruises once or twice a year. However, the faithfuls do dispute the number went this high.
0: Starr did, in fact, start seeing a doctor several months after her disclosure when she came back from her extended holiday. Dr. Gerritsen would see Starr to talk openly about her abuse and about Andrew Peters. Behaviorism was on the rise in the 1920s. And this theory of psychology assumes that reflexes are conditioned and based on current stimuli and previous history. So we're kind of talking rat in the maze stuff here. This is obviously an extremely basic definition of something you could read on for years and never reach the end. But we need to keep this in mind when we discuss star's treatment because it It sounds shady, at best, to our modern ears, but it makes sense within the idea that our mental health is based on external factors. So with that understanding in mind, Dr. Gerritsen recommended that Starr's parents arrange a healthy sexual relationship for her without her knowledge that it was arranged. The idea was to take away Starr's negative responses formed by the abuse from Peter's which he believed was the cause of Star's mental health issues, and replace it with good and healthy feelings about sex, she would then be able to heal from her trauma. This type of sex therapy first surprised me in what I still consider a more modest time. Yes. But this was an urban setting during the Roaring Twenties, and maybe it wasn't as quite out of place, as I would think. I mean, this was the same time period that F. Scott Fitzgerald was writing about. Star's parents paid an artist named Edwin Magary to woo and seduce Star without Star knowing it was arranged. They didn't volunteer this knowledge to the police. The police found out when reading a hidden diary of Star's. And we'll hold you in suspense a bit because we'll get into the diary a little later.
1: So how long did this... False relationship go for?
0: Based on the diary, it seemed to be about a year or two. When we talk about the diary, some of her diaries are missing. And so we just have this one. And it was occurring during that time period. And that kind of spanned two to three years. But in it, she also talked about telling her mother she should have an affair with Edwin and Tucker being in love with Edwin. And there are other men that she was in love with mentioned in there. So I'm unsure how long it lasted.
1: Star was initially reported missing on the evening of Saturday, June 6. Her stepfather went to the police because Star had not come home at all on the Friday. In his report, he said that Star left home on Friday morning at about 9.30 and went to get her hair waved. She had $3 on her with two of those dollars to cover her hair appointment. He reported she never stayed out past midnight, she never drank alcohol, and she didn't have enough money to have gotten her hair waved and then run off somewhere, like to her family in Boston, for example. And he was insistent that she definitely wouldn't have left without getting her hair done first, which would have only left her with $1, not really enough to get very far. In addition to giving the police a photo of Star, he gave a rundown of the clothing she was wearing. All the clothes she was wearing was bought at Lord and Taylor, which was a black hat, black coat with a fur collar, black gloves, a blue and white paisley dress, tan stockings and black shoes. Now let's remember, this was June and we're in New York City. It might seem odd that she'd be dressed up in a coat, a hat and gloves when it would have been something like 70 to 80 degrees outside. But this was the 1920s, and the in-trend coat at the time was a cocoon coat, which was made from a light material, so it was a more summery type coat. And the fur collar was one of the styles of the more fashionable high-market coats. Same with the gloves and the hat. Even in summer, it was a given for someone like Starr who had a preoccupation with fashion. Stanley was more or less told to go home and come back on Monday if Starr hadn't come home before then.
0: On Monday, June 8th, 1931, Long Beach, New York was full of beachcombers looking for lost treasures from the beachgoers from the weekend before. This was during the Great Depression throughout the industrialized world. In the United States in 1931, unemployment rate was 15%, and it would be two more years before the New Deal was put in place, which was pretty much the first meaningful attempt at relief for the unemployed. Things were bad for those without jobs, and even those with jobs with low wa- had low wages and long hours. So beachcombing wasn't just a hobby of collecting forgotten treasure. It was a way to make money by finding lost jewelry, watches, and coins. And these beachcombers are who found Star's body. Now, the police, when the police arrived on the scene, they collected anything the beachcombers found near or around the body. And by that, I mean anything they volunteered to give. (laughs) At this time, I'm going to say I'm not 100% sure had they found jewelry of Star's or something of value, they would have necessarily handed it over, not because they're bad people, but because they were desperate people. However, the items that were collected were shown to the family, and they said none of them belonged to Star. Star's body had sunken into the sand a bit, and she had been there through at least one tide. She was covered with the debris and sand that the tide would bring in, and so it was pretty clear it had washed over her at some point. So if you think back to the many layers she was wearing that Allie talked about, when she was found, she was only wearing her dress and her stockings, and her stockings, in these days, you know, they weren't like we have today, and so they were being held up by a girdle belt. The dress was identified as the paisley one she had been last seen in Friday morning. She had no other underwear or outerwear. She had no jewelry on, no handbag, and her coat was gone.
1: On Monday morning, about three hours after the body was found, Stanley showed up at the police station to inform them Starr still hadn't returned home. This was obviously a time before computers and the internet, so the detective taking the second report in Manhattan, New York, he had not heard about the body found at the beach on Long Island, New York, some 50 miles away. The detective had a list of unidentified people in hospitals and the such, and the only one matching star at all was a patient at Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. According to Stanley, the detective made the suggestion to go there, but according to the detective, Stanley was the one making the suggestion himself, having claimed to know someone who ended up in Bellevue after being dropped off there drunk and was being held there under a fake name. If Stanley actually did say this, then we know who the person he knew was. It would have been Starr. A year prior, so in 1930, an ambulance transported a young woman from a hotel in New York City. She was with a middle-aged man who claimed she was his wife, Mary Collins. The man's name was Joseph Collins. And Mary Collins was extremely intoxicated. She also appeared to have been hit in the face repeatedly. She was given something to help her go to sleep, and then Helen and Stanley picked up Mary Collins, who actually was Star, the following morning. Star claimed to have no real memory of what happened the night before, except she had drunk a little gin. Star's parents believed she'd been attacked and raped by this Joseph Collins person, who was never found, and it could only be assumed that he used a fake name. This time around, though, none of the patients at Bellevue were Star. Another odd statement Stanley said that day, which while he doesn't deny saying it, he claims he was prompted by something the detective had said to him, but he asked how long it takes for a body to come to the surface after drowning. Honestly, this isn't as suspicious as you might think. Star had, in the weeks leading up to her death anyway, she had visited docked cruise ships more than once. While she went on her cruising vacations, she met a few cruise directors she was crushing on, and she would join the ships before they departed for small parties. While Stanley was spending the weekend trying to find Star, I imagine he would have checked out these cruise ships. Later that day, after Stanley had gone home, he called the detective to say he had seen a newspaper clipping about a woman found on Long Beach. The trip took him about a half an hour before he was on Long Island to identify the body of his stepdaughter, Star Faithful. Now the news had gotten out somehow, because by the time he had finally returned home, and it was late that night by this stage, reporters were everywhere outside his apartment building, and they had questions. Stanley gave the impression to the reporters that Star was as pure as the driven snow, and then he threatened to sue if they'd printed anything that would reflect poorly on Star. And while we do see this happen today, I mean, obviously people don't want their loved ones' dirty laundry being aired after they die, but I think this goes even deeper. This was a time of yellow journalism, when the competition to sell papers encouraged more sensational storytelling and downright tabloid-style reporting. Even the slightest misstep in Starr's past could have been blown up in the papers as much more than what it really was. And as much as Stanley kept insisting Starr lived this clean and simple life, he would have known that this was not entirely true.
0: Two autopsies were performed, and both on the same day when she was found. While Starr and her family weren't famous, they were known and the authorities could see that this may become a big story, and it did, they had a second and more thorough autopsy done to conclude the manner of death, homicide, suicide, or accidental drowning. They really wanted to pin this down before rumors got out. The first autopsy had found fluid and foam in her lungs, showing that she had indeed drowned. The second found significant amounts of sand through her trachea and into her lungs. The tide washing over her body after death would not have the force to get the sand all the way to her lungs. She had to have breathed it in. Based on the condition of her body, the time of entering the water was put at about 48 hours previously. So we're talking either Friday night or Saturday morning. Now, I'll note that another expert later disagreed with this and said that she was in the water for more like 10 hours. So this would have meant she went in the water just the night before on Sunday evening. And this will become more important when we discuss what might have happened to her. I mean, the timeline is pretty important here. A typical ocean drowning would show sand because there's sand in the ocean, but because of the amount of sand Star breathed in, It was concluded that she drowned in rather shallow water, no deeper than 10 feet. She also had cuts and bruises that the medical examiner said might have been caused by another person and that they were caused before she died. He can't say that they were inflicted at the time of her death. I mean, it's always possible she was in an altercation prior to her death that was not related to her death. But it also... These bruises and cuts could be signs of having been held down in the water. The toxicology screen showed Star had ingested two tablets worth of Veronal, which was the brand name of a drug that's more commonly known, at least here in the U.S., as Barbitol, or even more simply as Downers. It's a barbiturate, and the amount she took, whether willingly or not, was not enough for an overdose.
1: But she was only a small girl, so I it definitely would have taken some kind of effect on her.
0: Yes, they said that she would have been significantly sedate, possibly to a full stupor. And Star was known to use this drug recreationally on her own, though you would think she would know how much was too much to take. But it would have made it a lot easier to hold her down, but it also would have been a lot harder for her to get out of the water if she ac- was got in there accidentally on her own. So that could cut yeah, Even way. if she
1: was used to it and she knew how much to take, definitely it would have made any attack on her easier.
0: Along the lines of the timeline, there was no alcohol found in her system and she had eaten a fair-sized meal about four hours prior to death that was made up of meat, mushrooms, potatoes, bread, and fruit. This is pretty important when we talk about the timeline of the weekend. And again, in the battle of experts, there is a disagreement on whether or not she was sexually assaulted. It is agreed that there were signs of sexual activity. One expert said there were signs of rape. Another said that there were signs of sexual activity, but not rape. We know now that about 30% of rape victims do not actually show any injuries specific to sexual assault. So you really can't tell.
1: I don't know. The missing underwear part, it kind of points towards some kind of sexual assault.
0: I agree. It's very likely she was sexually assaulted. After Star's death, her stepfather told the police that he had burned two of her diaries previously at Star's own insistence. And he also said he burned them without looking in them at all. Okay, now this is odd, and not just because I'm nosy and I definitely would have read them. It's odd because if Star wanted the contents of the diaries gone so completely that she wanted them burned to ashes, why would she hand them over to her stepfather? Did she really think he wasn't going to look in them? And it's further strange that Star supposedly handed over the diaries to be burned because the police, on searching her room found another diary that was hidden away. My guess is her stepfather, who was very concerned with preserving her image, burned these two diaries and hadn't found the third one.
1: That makes sense.
0: This third one was written in September of 1926, when she was 20 years old, and it ended in January of 1929, when she was about to turn 23. The contents of this diary showed... That Star wasn't exactly the girl her parents were trying to make her out to be. She wrote about drinking and going out to see men. She also revealed her relationship with Edwin. It appears that she did not know it was arranged by her parents by some of the things she said. And she also talks about intimate relationships with other men other than Edwin. Nothing in there is terribly shocking to the modern ear and probably not that shocking to other socialites in the 1920s in her class, but her family was really trying to protect her image against anyone who would judge her. So that's why I think they burned those diaries. And I think this diary kind of shows also why they would have wanted to burn them. She reveals a little bit more about their home life. She has a few compliments toward her family, but she also has a lot of complaints. Her diary... She was a home full of arguments, an unhappy marriage between her mother and stepfather, which seemed more of an arrangement than an actual marriage or partnership. She didn't get along with her sister. I mean, if you think about it, they didn't spend much time together. They were six years apart in age. Much of their school-age lives were spent away at school, and as adults, they traveled separately, Star especially. I also think her diaries show her mood swings rather accurately. She has entries saying she hates Stanley and one saying that she likes him. She says Tucker is vicious and then she says she's sweet. She goes between who she's in love with, who she can't stand. And then she discusses having something she called, quote, curious dreads that come on suddenly. One day had two entries. The first about how happy and excited she was And the next, later that same day, how she got a, quote, reaction and felt fearful of everything. According to the district attorney, Tucker broke down crying after questioning and said she wasn't sorry that Star was dead because Star was happier and everyone else was happier. So I think we're getting a glimpse into Star's mental health crisis in her 20s and the toll it took on her and on her family. Like I said, after reading on this, I do believe she was sexually abused. Peters is dead, so we can come out and say that even though he was never charged. I think she was groomed by him, and I think she was abused.
1: She's still so sad. Poor star.
0: I also think she may have had an underlying issue with brain chemistry, and she was only being treated for the external influences of abuse. I'm not going to diagnose her with a mood disorder or a personality disorder, But this was a girl in crisis in a time before we had adequate treatment for her. I mean, not that we have adequate treatment for everyone yet, but for someone who's largely dealing with depression, mood swings, and anxiety, I think she'd have a chance today with modern medicine, with the medications we have, and also with the wider therapy options.
1: And when you add all that onto the alcohol she was drinking and the drugs she was taking, she was desperately screaming out for help absolutely now obviously the family were interviewed extensively and through the interviews the police learnt of an incident from the week before star went missing the family and the witnesses told conflicting stories about what happened in this incident so we're going to try and stick with the most consistent story there seems to be a lot of differences and that only exists to try to preserve star's reputation So the story goes on May 29 the cruise ship the Franconia it was about to leave from New York to head to England. The ship's doctor who was George Jameson Carr he had previously met Star on another cruise. Star boarded the Franconia without a ticket and she does this to see Carr but he refuses to see her. He doesn't really want anything to do with her. Based on letters, diary entries, and statements of those who knew Star, she was in love with the guy. Dr. Carr, however, he later dismissed media reports that he had any sort of romantic connection with Star.
0: And a lot of this denial comes from the first time he met Star. She was on a cruise ship that he was working on. He was summoned to her room because she was in there with a young man. The man was drunk and Star was unconscious. Probably drunk, possibly also sedated, since we do know she took barbiturates. Carr said they were both dressed, but the man was making love to Star. Now that sounds impossible to our modern ear, but making love in this time in history didn't solely mean having intercourse. It could have meant just making romantic advances, whether just flirting or actually touching. Dr. Carr sent the young man away and had him supervised by others. He expressed some concern that the young man was making advances on an unconscious young woman. And that's much to his credit, because we have people today in 2017 who don't understand that that's not okay. He had to pump Star's stomach, and she eventually came to. So... When the press later asked him about his relationship with Starr, he referenced this and said, you don't get romantic with a girl whose stomach you pumped the first time you met her.
1: That's fair enough.
0: That seems pretty logical. And regardless of how deep their relationship went, they had met a few times and they corresponded. Star corresponded with a lot of people. Star definitely had feelings for him, and deep ones, in fact, uh, though there's no proof that he reciprocated.
1: It's sad because knowing Star's history, she probably only had this romantic feelings towards him because he helped her.
0: Exactly. If we really look at what was going on with Star, she had formed some unhealthy ideas of what male attention looked like and what it should look like, and... Their treatment for that was to have her have sex with more men. From the perspective of how we feel is appropriate for treating people in crisis today, this just all seems so odd, but they were trying. How many times do you hear stories of sexual abuse, not just this far back, but even today just being swept under the rug? I mean, they tried to get her help. They got her the help that was available at the time, so maybe the tragedy is... That she wasn't born 80 years later.
1: She saw another man she had previously met on a cruise, a man named Francis Hamlin. He was described as a cruise director and had just finished his leg with the Franconia cruise ship from England to New York. and he was in charge of helping get the passengers settled in for the trip back to England, but he was staying on in New York. Multiple people on the Franconia who saw Star aboard report that she was visibly upset. According to what Starr told her mother, Hamlin invited her to a party on board where she had a drink, and according to Tucker, Starr admitted to getting quite drunk. However, what actually happened was a bit more than a little drinking at a party. Starr ended up staying on board the ship, some saying she was trying to stow away, but when she was discovered, she was forced off the boat onto a tugboat and brought back to shore. Star claims she was simply so drunk she wasn't able to get off the boat, but others are adamant that she was trying to stow away.
0: As we build the final timeline, so this Franconia incident happened a week before, but as we build up the days leading up, it's going to be really boring if we recounted every detail of Star's comings and goings. The police did a very thorough job interviewing everyone she had lunch with and she spoke to, but not all of it's relevant enough to recount. So let's just hit the highlights. And the highlights, guys, they're, they're confusing. Different people reported seeing different things. And the papers were paying people for interviews. It's not always clear who was being honest and who was trying to make a buck during the Great Depression. I don't blame them any more than I blame those beachcombers if they kept some stuff. But it's made our job a bit harder today.
1: So, according to both her mother and her sister, Starr claimed she went to the studio of an artist named Henry Stoner in the company of Frances Hamlin on Wednesday, all of which Hamlin denies entirely. He said he did not see Starr at all after the Franconia incident. Starr claimed Stoner invited her into a party with Miriam Hopkins, who was an actress at the time, because Hopkins was getting ready to leave for Los Angeles. Now this is a little odd because Stoner didn't throw the party for Hopkins that night, but did attend a party for Hopkins the following night on the Thursday night. It is possible that Helen and Tucker could have got their dates mixed up because it doesn't make sense why Star would lie about being at a party that hadn't even happened yet. And Harry Stoner, whose studio this party was supposed to be at, he said he hadn't seen Star in about a month. Now there is no evidence at all that Starr attended this party on either night. No one saw her there on Thursday and another doctor she met through her travels, Charles Roberts, he claims he met her at 10 o'clock on the Thursday night to talk about an upcoming trip she wanted to make. He assumed she wanted to talk to him about upgrading her accommodation or something along those lines. So they went to a speakeasy and then a cab ride. Now for those who don't know, alcohol was illegal in the United States during this time and what a speakeasy was, was essentially a secret bar. Both Tucker and Helen don't believe she went to this party because, as Tucker puts it, if you went to a party with a famous actor, you would at least mention her in passing. But Starr doesn't mention Miriam Hopkins at all, though she does mention two other actors she apparently met. One name matched a single actor who was an elderly man at the time and he was performing in England, so clearly he wasn't there, and the police found no record of an actor or anyone else for that matter with the other man's name. Back to her mother and sister's timeline of events, they said the party was on Wednesday night and then Starr left about 9.30 at night on Thursday to go out with Hamlin and then returned about one or two. Why she told them she left with Hamlin and not the truth that she was with Roberts, it's not clear.
0: On Friday morning, around 9.30 in the morning, Star left home with the $3 we talked about. Two of them were to get her hair waved. At 11.30, she bought a paper about half a mile from her home. The man who sold her the paper knew her because she used to live near his paper stand. It's unlikely he was mistaken about her identity. A lot of people came out of the woodwork with star sightings, and because the newspaper was paying for these interviews, we're not going to cover all of them, just reputable ones like this, someone who knew her. It is odd. It took her two hours to make it a half mile, but maybe he was wrong on the time. Maybe she stopped to chat with someone else along the way. At noon, it's reported that Star walked into the hairdressers to have her hair waved, And another woman was with her, but I have no idea who this woman was. I couldn't find that they ever figured out who was with her. They were currently booked, so she made an appointment to come back in an hour. This interaction with the manager was backed up by a client in the waiting room, and they both remember it because they commented on Star Faithful having a lovely name. And the manager cracked a lame joke about how she'll be faithful in keeping her appointment. <laughs> I know, it's like, it's such a dad joke there. But <laughs> again, I'm including this one because we knew she was going to get her hair waved. And the, here are two women who remember her unusual name and this joke, so it stood out to them.
1: Okay, so that brings us around 1 p.m. The cab driver saw Star in the company of a man with the name Cunard on his uniform, and they were by the docks. Cunard was, and still is actually, a cruise line. And the cab driver took him for a steward. He recognised Star because it just so happened that he was at the pier waiting on fares the week prior when the hysterical Star Faithful was taken off the Falconia on a tugboat. Star and the man both got into the cab, and the driver said he smelt alcohol on Star, but she was walking fine and didn't seem obviously drunk. They went back to Star's house, and when she got out, she said to the man, "'I'll see you at the wharf about four. Bye-bye, Brucey.'" Now, Bruce Winston was the name of an actor she claimed to met at the party she claimed she went to. But the cruise company had no one named Bruce working for them in New York. It is possible that he just made up this name though. The men told her he'd be too busy with passengers and not to come back. He left the cab to go back to the pier and Star appeared to go up to her home yet no one in the family saw her return that day. About an hour later the same cab driver was back at the pier again waiting for fares and he saw Star with the man. This time the man put her in the cab alone and told him, told the cab driver, not to bring her back. But then Starr told the cab driver she only had 10 cents to pay for the fare, so she got out of the cab early and the driver saw her start walking back towards the pier. Now we're including this because while all of this does seem a little dramatic and the papers did pay that cab driver, it is backed up. First, the cab driver was able to produce his trip record and it showed the trip from the pier to her house and then back to the pier and then back to where he dropped her off. He didn't write down these times, however. There was another cab driver at the pier who witnessed the second pickup of Star and he put the time at around two o'clock. So he had paper receipts and a witness backing him up.
0: It does appear she made it back to the piers after she got out of that cab. Witnesses saw her on the Mortania cruise ship until shortly before it departed at five. Then she went to the Caramania, another ship owned and operated by Cunard, to spend time with Dr. Roberts again. He confirmed her clothing, which was again the same clothes her family reported she left in, and the same dress that she was found in. If you remember, the autopsy showed that she did not have alcohol in her system. And she had a meat and potatoes with mushroom and fruit meal four hours before she died. According to Roberts and others, she had been drinking for much of the day. And the meal she ate around 8.30 p.m. was boiled eggs and ham sandwiches. The final sighting on that Friday night was at about 10.20 p.m., a police sergeant at the Cunard Piers witnessed Star Faithful with a man who put her in a green taxi. He knew it was Star because, like the cab driver, this was his regular spot. He felt that she was, in fact, drunk at this point. Though he wasn't close enough to overhear any conversation or to get a good look in the dark at the man she was with, but the man was later confirmed to be Dr. Roberts. He said... She had told him she had plans on another ship that wasn't due to leave until midnight, but he didn't know whom she was meeting. Now, it turns out that this ship had actually left by the time Star left Dr. Roberts. It was was not leaving at midnight, so this was not the ship she was meeting. It was also really close to that ship, so there's no reason for her to take a taxi there. And no one's come forward reporting her to be on any other ship that night. The cab driver of the final taxi never came forward. And even though the police officers did a thorough search of the records of the largest cab company that employed green cabs, they could never find out which green cab she got into.
1: Now, there is one more sighting we need to discuss because it does come up in the popular theories that we'll talk about in a bit. Four months after Starr's death, police informants detailed that on June six, the Saturday her stepfather reported her missing, Starr was in a bar known to be a mob hangout. She had an argument with the man she was with, and she was also drunk. When the men she was with left her for a period of time, another group of men at the bar persuaded her to leave and go to another speakeasy. Starr was so drunk that she complied. There are no other witnesses as to what happened between Starr getting into the cab on Friday night and this particular incident at the hotel bar the next day. All we know for sure is that her family reported her to have not gone home.
0: On Sunday, there were no reported sightings and her body was found, as we know, by the beachcombers on Monday morning. The police ran two somewhat parallel investigations, and this is largely because Between the district attorney and the police, they were of two minds of what happened. They looked into homicide on one side, and then they looked into suicide slash possible accidental drowning, but mostly they were looking into suicide on the other side. So let's start with the fact that there is no clear-cut case either way. The investigators and the prosecutor disagreed. The prosecutor was pretty convinced this was murder, but the grand jury left it with an open verdict, which is what it is to this day. So we're not going to be solving any great mysteries today, but let's lay out the case a little bit for each one. So the main thing that led to the idea she was murdered was that she had the bruises on her body and she had drowned in relatively shallow water. And that's pretty consistent with being held under the water. Second, her undergarments were gone, though she was dressed. This could indicate redressing after death, though... Why would they put on her stockings and garter belt, but not her bra and underpants? That doesn't really make sense. None. Her purse, gloves, hat, jacket, none of them were found. They didn't wash up. They didn't show up tucked away on one of the cruise ships she had visited. All of those items vanished completely. It could have happened independently, but it could also mean that someone was purposely concealing them. There was an early theory that she was pushed off one of the ships. This would have had to have been after it undocked and it came down the bay due to the distance between where the piers were and where her body washed up. But after they decided she drowned in shallow water, they started thinking she was held under rather than being pushed into deep water.
1: The first suspect and the one the family pointed the finger at was Andrew Peters. Perhaps he was tired of paying and he knew it was going to keep going until Starr could no longer testify against him in a criminal or civil court case. The idea isn't that he necessarily would have done it himself, but rather he would have hired someone else to kill her. But there is no evidence of this, and he hadn't been in contact with the family except for sending them payments in five years or even more. Would he have known enough about Star's habits to be able to send someone to find her, lure her, and then kill her? Possibly, but I don't think so.
0: I think his goal was to keep this quiet, and the way to keep this quiet was to keep paying, not to bring more attention to Star. And also, Star's parents knew they had told other people who acted as intermediaries, and her sister knew So unless he was going to bump off the whole family, it wasn't going to keep his secret quiet. And it certainly didn't.
1: Honestly, I think if Peters was going to have her killed, he would have done it long before this point.
0: Absolutely. This is five years after she disclosed. The next suspect that's come up quite frequently in my reading is her stepfather Stanley. The Sunday Star was missing, he had already sent off a letter to Peters saying she was missing and asking for more money. So the idea is that he either killed Star because he knew that would be some leverage against Peters to keep his name out of this investigation. Or he killed her because she was going to say the abuse didn't happen. But the one thing that really kind of goes against this is that he mentioned Peters pretty early on before Peters really had time to pay him to be quiet. He had already told the police about the situation with Andrew Peters. And I do think her stepfather was using her and her abuse for the payout with Peters, which makes her worth more alive than dead for him. A murder investigation only lasts so long, but he could claim Star needed additional treatment for years and years.
1: And speaking of using Star as a payday, let's move on to the mob theory. If we are to assume that the Saturday sighting was accurate of her leaving a known mob hangout with some men and that she didn't drown until Sunday night, it's possible the mob was involved. They would have taken her from the bar to a secondary location near the beach and held her there until some point on Sunday when she was killed, possibly at the beach, and left there near the shore. The main backing for this is that she is known to be drunk on Friday night and did not, as far as we know, eat a meal consistent with what was in her stomach contents. So between Friday night and her death, she sobered up and ate another somewhat large meal. The theory is that Irish mobster named Vanny Higgins, he found out about what happened to her at the hands of Peters. He also found out Peters was paying the faithful's hush money. In an attempt to get enough information out of Starr to extort Peters himself, Higgins kidnapped Starr and brought her to a hotel near the beach. With the sedatives in her system, he smacked her around a bit to get the information out of her. I don't think the autopsy showed the level of beating required to kill her, but maybe the sedative plus one big knock in the head rendered her unconscious and maybe he thought she was dead. So she was dumped in the shallow water by the beach, barely alive and unable to rouse herself, so she drowned. Another theory is that the cab driver who picked her up on Friday night is somehow involved. In spite of the reward, no one came forward to say he picked her up. And this wasn't a small reward either. It was $100, which is about 1600 with inflation today. And as you said before, Charlie, this is the middle of the Depression, so I imagine it would have been a difficult proposition to turn down. And I can see how this cab driver theory could easily blend into the mobster theory because Vanny Higgins owned several cabs. Whether he owned green ones, I'm not sure, and I couldn't find anything that would specify otherwise.
0: I go a little against this theory because these... Sightings of Star didn't come out for four months. So, you know, they could be a little hazy. They could, they were from police informants. Maybe there was something in it for them to disclose. However, it does make the no alcohol in her system and the contents of her stomach make sense. Yeah. I don't feel like there's a lot of evidence for this theory, but I think this theory makes sense and it puts a lot of the missing pieces together.
1: If this was a movie, this would be exactly what happened, but I don't know if anything supports it in real life.
0: The last homicide theory that we're going to talk about is that this was a sexual encounter gone wrong. And the evidence for this is largely the lack of underclothes and that she was in a similar situation the year before. Remember when she was admitted to Bellevue under an assumed name? So this theory is similar in that Star met a man on the beach, possibly for sex, possibly she wasn't interested in sex and he was. There may have been some partial undressing and she changed her mind or she said no, or he was getting too rough or too scary or being under the influence of the barbiturates she started feeling out of it and was pushing him away. She managed to get her dress back on before in the struggle, the man held her under the water until she was dead And then he grabbed any of the remaining items of hers and his on the beach before he fled.
1: Or maybe that mobster theory is how the story went is right in the way that the group of guys she met took her away to a hotel room. They attempted to sexually assault or rape her. She passed out. They thought she was dead. And then they dumped the body.
0: I think, again, back to the no alcohol in her system and the contents of her stomach, her being held for a period of time before she died makes sense it makes sense yep now moving on to the suicide angle which is what even though they're like oh maybe it was accidental that was kind of a nice way to say they were pursuing a suicide angle an early theory was that she fell from one of the ships and drowned but like we said based on where she would have had to fall from. It was deep. It wasn't shallow. It's unlikely she would have fallen from the piers on the west side of Manhattan and washed up all the way on the south side of Long Island. That, that's unlikely. So she would have been on the ship, stowed away, somehow fell off. If you have access to a Google Maps in the now or in the near future, you can look it up. Look for Chelsea Piers and map it to Long Beach, And you'll see what I mean. It's very unlikely that her body left at Chelsea Piers and washed up in Long Island. And again, even if experts don't agree on how long she was in the water or if she was sexually assaulted prior to her death, everyone agrees that she drowned in shallow, sandy water. The suicide theory, however, got a bit of a boost when Dr. Carr arrived in England and he discovered that Star had written him three letters in the week before her death. The first one stated that she was going to commit suicide because she couldn't stand her life and her unrequited love for him. But then it also asked him to come see her when he was back in New York. So again, this is along the lines of her diary, just swinging from one emotion to the other. The second letter was a bit more formal and it was an apology for her actions on the Franconia. Which surely embarrassed him. As a professional. And the third letter. Detailed her plans at suicide. Not so much how she was going to do it. But how she was going to spend. Her last 24 hours alive. She's going to drink slowly. She's going to have a lot of fun. Uh, just how fun it would be to live life. Knowing you only had 24 hours left. It was, it was kind of an odd letter. And for those who believe this was a suicide, this really clinched it. She wrote three letters, and in two of them, she said she was going to commit suicide. Stanley Faithful hired a handwriting expert who compared these letters with known letters from Starr and concluded that they were actually forgeries. I looked at samples that are available in the book, and the known samples were letters to Starr's mother, and the alleged letter was from the first one Star wrote to Dr. Carr, dated the night of the Franconia incident. The handwriting is different in a few ways. Star's normal handwriting had more loops and longer starting strokes than the letter to Dr. Carr. But you also have to assume that her letter to Dr. Carr was hurried and emotional, whereas the letters to her mother probably weren't. So shortening her handwriting by making it less loopy, that doesn't sound outside the rain realm of normal to me. And other things are near identical. She dotted her eyes all slightly to the right and with a stroke rather than a dot. She didn't go to the top to start her O's, but started them from the side a bit. And those are the same in both. And I'm not an expert (laughs) in handwriting. But when I'm looking at them, I see as many things in common as I see different from what I've seen of the samples, and it's very limited in the book, it's just a few individual letters and short word samples. I think what we're looking at in these letters, I do think Starr wrote them. I don't think someone thought a week before death to start mailing fake letters. I don't think Dr. Carr, who wasn't even in the country when she died, had any motive to forge letters. So it, the forgery angle doesn't make sense. What I think we're looking at, are the emotional writings of a depressed and, at this point in her life, unstable young woman. I do think she had suicidal ideation, and these letters are evidence of that, but that's not the same as me thinking she committed suicide.
1: The last theory is that all of this was an accident. That she fell off the ship, possibly when she came out of hiding as a stowaway, and she was in a semi stupor from the barbiturates she has taken. There is a possibility that the barbiturates someone had given her knocked her out and the person thought she was dead, like in the mobster theory, and they tossed her into the water in a more shallow area, not knowing that she was still alive. Now, I don't know if this is likely because of the shallow drowning, and we already went over that, but perhaps the drowning wasn't as shallow as they thought.
0: That's always a possibility here between... All the findings, even the contents of her stomach and her blood alcohol level and all of that. I mean, we're relying very heavily on them being accurate. But, I mean, the 1931, while forensic science was blossoming, it wasn't quite as exact. Not that it's terribly. We've talked about our own (laughs) issues with the forensics and cases we've talked about. It's not always exact now, even less so then. Now, there are some major holes in all the theories. Only the mobster theory explains how she got from the piers to Long Beach. And it's the only one that explains the alcohol, not having alcohol in her system. None of the theories explain where she was Friday night. Her family said she never came home. So she gets in a cab Friday night and nobody sees her until she's seen in a bar sometime on Saturday. Information we didn't find out for four months. Four months ago was what November 5th? I have no idea what I did on that day. I And even if I told you, I can't tell you for sure it was the fifth and not the sixth or the twelfth or you know, so yeah. we don't know how accurate this is. And if her family were involved, she would have gotten home on Friday night, so why didn't a cab driver come forward and say so? How come Stanley Faithful is the one who spent years pushing the homicide theory even after the grand jury declared it an open verdict? If he was involved, he would have pushed the other way. He would have been all for it being ruled a suicide or accidental. She could have been in the water for 48 hours, or less than 10. If it was closer to 48, why isn't there evidence of the meal and the alcohol? If it was less than 10, where was she all that time? She had no money, so how did she get to Long Island? It- she committed suicide... The most likely explanation is that she took a lot of the sedative and walked out to the yeah. beach, but again, how'd she get there with how'd no she money? Get there? Yeah. she had she had no money for a cab ride, so someone else got her out there. Doctor Roberts paid her fare when she left the piers that night in that green cab, but he didn't pay enough for her to go to Long Beach when she was just going a few miles home. All of the theories have holes, and that that's, I guess, a frustrating part of this. So, Allie, what are your thoughts on Star Faithful?
1: This is a tragic story. As you said earlier, if she was just born 80 years later, she would have had more of a chance, and the story didn't have to end the way it did. Because I think all the demons that she was wrestling with, the the problems that happened in her life, it all contributed to her death.
0: I'm not saying that being mentally ill right now is a cakewalk. And I know that access to treatment is dictated by how much you can afford rather than what you need. And there is a stigma still attached to mental health issues. However, Star had family who were supporting her through her therapies. She had access to the money for the treatment she needed. If she had antidepressants or anti-anxiety or mood stabilizers rather than alcohol and barbiturates, how much different would it have been? And as for her death, I do think she was murdered.
1: I agree. Yeah,
0: I think she was a a young woman in crisis whose behaviors due to that made her high
1: risk. And someone took advantage of her situation.
0: Yes, absolutely. So we want to thank everybody for listening. We'll go ahead and wrap up. The first thing we're going to do is give some shout-outs. First to some of our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate all the help on Patreon. So a big thank you to Amy C., and to Nikki, to Mary Virginia, and to Laura N. And I recognize some of these names from our Facebook group. So I appreciate talking to you guys over there too. And then five-star reviews. Thank you guys so much for so many of them. Um, so shout out to Lindsay the Librarian, Debbie K01, Oh No Trouble Here, Schooner Beer, MMM Buttery, Gata Blanca Terra, and... Erica20150811. So, thank you guys for your five star reviews. You can find us on Patreon if you wanted to support us there. Patreon.com insight pod. You can email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. Facebook is insightpod.com. If you want to find the group, Insight is two words. If you you use it as one word, you're going to end up on the wrong podcast page and they're going to get really confused. Twitter is at InsightfulPod, and I'm usually the one talking to you there. Allie's on Instagram at InsightPod. We have a website, InsightPod.com, and you can listen to all our episodes there, of course, in your app as well. If your app has a way to leave reviews, we do appreciate getting those reviews. If you have any other feedback for us, listener suggestions, you can message us on Facebook or email us. Either way is good. Uh, do you have anything else, Allie? No, I think it's about it. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. Bye.